Hello, and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis joining me from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler is joining us from northern New Jersey. Hi, guys. Hi, Zahava. This month, Zahava and Mimi spoke with Shoshana Keats-Jaskal, the co-founder of Chochmat Nashim, an Israeli organization combating the exclusion of women in the Orthodox community. They talked about the political and health inequalities that stem from this exclusion. I wasn't able to make it for that conversation, but for our second segment, we're all back together to talk about reports of sexual harassment by Michael Steinhardt and the implications about how megadonors are influencing the Jewish community and just the general changing culture of giving in our Jewish communities. Mimi, do you want to talk to us about your conversation with Shoshana Keats-Jaskal? So we spoke with Shoshana specifically about this alarming trend of erasing women's images from publications um, and advertisements. She talked about the genesis of this trend and the ramifications it has on all aspects of Orthodox life. Of course, this she's speaking from Israel, but she also draws some parallels to what's happening in the United States. I'll say as someone outside the Orthodox community, I actually found this to be a really important and relevant conversation about what happens when norms shift in unhealthy ways and then the real challenges that people on the ground face when they're trying to confront extremism in their communities. So here's that conversation. Okay, for our first segment, we are joined by Shoshana Keats-Jaskal, a writer and activist in Israel and co-founder of Chochmat Nashim, an organization whose title means The Wisdom of Women. Um, so Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So we invited Shoshana on to talk about uh, an issue that's um, gaining gaining traction, gaining some prominence in Israel and also in the United States on um, the erasure of women. Um, and usually, you know, in liberal discourse, people use the word erasure to mean something more figurative, things like not honoring uh, a group's story or history, or in this case, we mean literal erasure of women, um, you know, blurred faces, not present in pictures, not present in conversations. Um, and this is an issue that Shoshana has been working on. So, um, we're glad to have you to join us to talk about this really important topic. Um, so first, we'd like to ask you to please just tell us a little bit about Chochmat Nashim. What is this? What is the organization and how did it come to be? So Chochmat Nashim is um, currently there's uh, three of us who do the work. And thank God we've actually become a real movement uh, of men and women around the world who want a healthier Judaism. Um, I would say that we started out about, gosh, where are we now, 2019? About six and a half years ago, um, I personally was, I was born and raised in Lakewood, New Jersey, um, before it was Brooklyn, and I was a Jew among a lot of different kinds of Jews. You know, for me, the word Haredi or ultra-Orthodox wasn't something I ever, ever knew until I moved to Israel. Um, and so I grew up with all different kinds of Jews. You know, my grandparents were survivors. I wasn't religious. Uh, the yeshiva was down the street. I did go to the Orthodox day school, but everybody looked different, but everybody was Jewish. And so my concept of Judaism was just, you know, Shabbat and and Chagi. Uh, Shabbos and holidays and things that, you know, um, tzedakah, charity, and all of those things that were Jewy, uh, Manashevitz and all that, but but also just a, a community that was surrounded or centered around, I should say, the identity of being Jewish, 
But we didn't have divisions. You know, Rev Cutler Zetzel would speak to my mom in Yiddish while she was wearing jeans and walking the German shepherds. Like, there was a real unity in the Jewish community that, um, and if it wasn't, you know, even if they didn't think of each other as similar, there certainly wasn't animosity or people like saying you're not a Jew or this or that. So that's kind of my background. And um, I made Aliyah a few times, but the last time, uh, thank God, it was about 11 and a half years ago. And I moved to a place called um, Ermat Beit Shemesh, where there's a, a sizable, all different kinds of people live in Beit Shemesh, from Russians to Ethiopians to Moroccans to Americans to South Africans. And what I started to notice was extremism because we live next to literally the most extreme sects of Judaism, uh, next to the most idealistic Zionistic, uh, people in Judaism. And so you had all of a sudden clashes. And so my, my upbringing in Lakewood, New Jersey, where everybody was like copacetic was all of a sudden being severely challenged where women were told to go to the back of the bus. There are modesty signs, how we could dress. There were no women or, or girls on pictures and images. And I was starting to feel very confused and frustrated um, about what was happening. At the same time, my aunt or my husband's aunt, I should say, was uh, being refused a get. And even though she lived in America, her husband had come here and so she had to have her case heard in this country um, and being in the religious courts and seeing the powerlessness of a Jewish woman in a place where it's supposed to be uh, the height of justice, right? You go to a religious court and you expect, at least I did, expect justice. I expected fairness. I expected to be heard. And it was the exact opposite of everything I'm saying. Uh, and that was very painful. And so at the same time, um, a few other women were noticing extremism. It was when the women for the wall were throwing things at the women of the wall for the first time. And people started to be like, what the hell is happening here? <laughs> like, what is going on in this Jewish community? And so we started to come together and say, you know, we are not, we don't believe in the extremism on the right. And we don't want to. We don't want to leave orthodoxy. We want to be orthodox. So, what can we do to make sure that the orthodox community doesn't go off the rails with this extremism? And we came together. And so I don't remember who exactly which one of us came up with the idea of Chochmat Nashim. And I so wish we had a good English <laughs> English uh, name, but we don't yet. Um, and we started writing. We started writing the things that we were seeing. We started talking about the extremism that was going on. And what we noticed was that people around the world were saying, oh, I'm seeing this too. Even if it wasn't the exact same thing, because think, you know, we only have one Kotel, but they were seeing women being marginalized. They were seeing um, women not being heard. They were seeing pictures being removed. And so they said to me, or to us, I should say, we... We want to hear more, and what can we do? And so Chochmat Nashim, to make a long, long story longer, started to uh, try to give people answers to those questions. You know, how do we fight the extremism in our community? How do we encourage and empower our girls while still being Orthodox Jews? How do we make sure that we're, um, you know, um, how, do, how do we make sure that we're still maintaining our Masorah, our tradition, while making sure that things are just. And that was six and a half years ago that we started. And I, I am humbled and amazed at the people, men and women across the world, who really feel like 
there's no other place for them to put their trust and belief because everyone is kind of going off the rails. So thanks for that primer. I think that many people in the Jewish world think of the radical gender separation in all of its forms as kind of an ultra-Orthodox Haredi thing. Let's talk a little bit of the history. Is it something that's always existed in the Haredi world? You were talking a little bit about your childhood in Lakewood and how the Haredi population there, um, which probably wouldn't have been called Haredi at the time, um, you know, was interacting with everyone. What, what do we know a little bit about the history of this issue? So without question, it's new. Um, it's, I would say, in the past 50... Look, it started off in the very insular... Um, the, the most Hasidic communities, which are known to be the most insular and the most um, careful when it comes to, you know, modesty, quote unquote. And modesty is obviously defined in different ways, but in terms of women, in terms of sexual relations, it's the most res- it's the most restrictive. And so it started off in these communities, um, and it definitely became something of a norm over the past fifteen years. I mean, I have it's not just me. I mean, there's Jewish Observer. There's plenty of, organi- of of papers and media that absolutely have pictures of women. I have an entire video that I'm happy. We actually subtitled, so I'm happy to send it to whomever wants to see with Rav Shmuel Pappenheim, who used to be the editor of the um, Aguda paper here in Israel. And he says, of course, it's new. And not only is it new, but it's getting worse and worse to the point where they won't even put women's names, right? So they have an engagement announcement, but they only have the men. It's like psychotic. It's crazy. And so the answer to your question is, no, this is not the way it always was. Yes, it's getting worse. And part of the argument that I've been making is that there's no end, right? Because if you see modesty as an ever-increasing value, right? Not a value that's a... Um, in Judaism, you talk about the middle ground, right? It's always the... Rambam talks about the golden mean, the idea that we don't go to the right, we don't go to the left, we hold that middle ground where we do both physical, we enjoy the physical world, but we make it holy. And so when you have uh, this ideal of nothing's ever modest enough, so you, you're always losing, you can't win, right? So, so you have um, an, an ever-increasing sense of modesty and what happens is everything's relative and you can see that by the way in the Torah it talks about how certain things are not considered um, immodest in certain ways like if in an area where people don't women don't usually wear stockings so it's not a problem in an area even there's a the Chazonish has a, a an answer in his book he says we're in a place where women are used to uh, breastfeeding children in public when they're breastfeeding their child the breast is not a sexual object it's not a problem to see it and so when modesty is a, a relative thing, and it is in Judaism, the, the more you make immodest, there's simply nowhere else to go. And Rav Ovadia himself, when he was shown, Rav Ovadia Yosef, when he was shown his, his biography that someone made of him, and there was no images of his wife, he said, what is this? They took out my wife? What are they? Soon everyone's going to be in veils. That's what he said. Rav Ovadia himself said so. He said, there's, you can't, there's no way that you can create your own standard of modesty and be able to refrain from that slippery slope and it's what i find fascinating is that people always talk about the slippery slope on the left right well we can't let women do this and we can't let women do that because god knows what's going to happen and yet here the right is greasy sliding down its its slippery slope when it comes to this and what my my issue is nobody stops them 
Nobody, not the OU, not the RCA, not the Rabbanu, nobody is saying to them, what are you doing? What are you doing? Everybody just accepts it. And I don't understand why. If why do we have leadership? Why do we have Torah values if no one is going to stand up for them? And so that's basically what I've been saying for the past six and a half years. And now, thank God, in the past, I would say year, year and a half, a lot of people are waking up and saying, you know what, this is crazy because it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And you have health clinics here in Israel. You have, they don't even say the word breast cancer. I mean, my God, this is affecting women's health. There was a, a fascinating um, story shared in an article that you wrote um, by a psychotherapist who talked about an ultra-Orthodox man who was struggling to be intimate with his wife because it sounded like, at least, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the culture he had grown up with was that women were to be so distanced from him that he did not know what to do with his wife. And to me, that's where these values, like, clearly we've gone down the wrong path. Yes. If the value of, you know, uh, procreation isn't being, if, if we don't, if we haven't taught our children how to be in intimate relationships with their spouses, then we've done something very wrong. Well, I would agree with you, and I would say that here the Jewish family has always been the nucleus of the Jewish community, right? And, and by the way, that's difficult for a lot of people who don't fit that norm, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have people who do believe in the Jewish unit, the Jewish family, the mother, the father, the children, right, getting married at 18, um, and they're the ones who are destroying this ideal because they're marginalizing the Jewish woman. Now... People like to say to me, oh, nobody's as respected as the Jewish woman, la, la, la. You know what? Do me a favor. You're right. In each individual family, it's women are respected. I'm not saying that they're not respected in their families, but you have to pull back and you have to look at the larger picture. And when I got a phone call from Ruth Kolian, who is a Haredi woman from Perak uh, Tikva, when she called me up and she said to me, I need your help. I said to her, I, what can I do for you? I, you know, I didn't know who she was. And she said, I can't watch another um, neighbor of mine die of a disease she didn't know she had. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't understand why she was coming to me, right? This was a number of years ago, three or four years ago. And she said, I heard you talk about uh, women and erasing women and you raise money for Ju for Jewish women and I need your help to raise money for a breast cancer awareness campaign in the Haredi community. And as she continued to explain to me, she said, we don't say the word breast. We're not, talk to, we're not taught how to do... Um, breast exams we're not told to do to get screening we don't even know what they are and I my my 34 year old neighbor just died huh. because she didn't discover that she had breast cancer until it was too late to do anything about it it was metastasized and that was it finished 34 and she left her kids you know orphans and so for the past three or four years we've been raising money and we've been going into the Haredi community, not into the Haredi community, but into, the, you know, the streets of the Haredi community and putting up those posters that talk about um, early detection in very modest language. And she gets 250 phone calls a year asking, what's a mammogram? What does that mean? What's going on? Um, and, you know, I'm both, by the way, from men and women asking the question, and I'm, I'm very proud to be part of that, but I'm very, very uh, devastated 
that it's something that has to be done. I think it's a little bit harder to hear, you know, in America, because in, in America, it's like people are still exposed to, you know, secular media in some ways. But the fact of the matter is that after I wrote that one piece about breast cancer, I got emails from Argentina and New York. And they said to me, we have the same problem with our Hasidic communities in, you know, in Argentina and New York who don't come for screening, who don't self-check, who aren't getting the, the, getting this, this, the tests. What can you, can you help us with that? And so the more that you, and I'm, I'm going to explain what's that connection, right? How, does, how do you connect breast cancer to you know, no images of women? So when women aren't seen, right? You don't see them in ads. You have ads with just men, with ads with fathers and sons. You have ads that look like two fathers and lots of sons. When you don't have women in your peripheral vision, if you're not seeing them as a normal part of society and you're not hearing their voices because they're not the ones writing articles, they're not the ones who are giving their opinions, they're not the ones telling, giving Torah over. So when you don't see them and you don't hear them, so the women, their needs are not considered. So in, in Haredi communities, and, and increasingly, by the way, also in Datila Umi, uh, in, in uh, national religious um, communities that are getting more and more you know, strict, I would say, women are not in policy-making positions. What does that mean? It means that when policy is decided, whether it's about a health policy or a communal policy or an educational policy, women are not part of that decision at all. They're hardly ever even consulted unless it's perhaps about girls' education only. And so when women aren't consulted and their needs are not considered because a man doesn't live life as a woman does, right? It's just the nature of humanity. Someone who's living life as a man doesn't live life as a woman. And so when you don't live life as, a, uh, as the other person and you don't live Judaism as the other person, you don't experience Judaism in that way, so you don't think of those things unless someone tells you about them. Okay, and if you are open and you're listening and you're saying, tell me your experiences, explain to me what's happening, what does it look like for you, how can things be better for you, so then perhaps you can function in a way where everyone's needs are considered. And that doesn't happen. You have two Haredi parties in this country. There are 13 members of Knesset in this, in this country that are Haredi. Not one is a woman. And when the Knesset has committees on domestic violence and when they have committees on women's health, not one Haredi... Uh, MK shows up. So who is representing their women? Who's going back to talk about domestic violence? Who's talking about health care? Not one person. Because they aren't not represented. And so when you don't have representation in political life, and you don't have representation in religious life, and you don't have representation in the media, because the media doesn't talk about women's health, and it doesn't talk about divorce, and it doesn't talk about these things. Where are the women getting information, and where are they being heard? Right. They're not. They're simply not. So Shoshana, you're saying, though, that this is affecting the, the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community, but you're also saying that in Israel, um, it's starting to impact the Dati Umi national religious, which is sort of the closest analog to modern Orthodox in Israel, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that community as well. So how is... How is that affecting people outside the Haredi community? How is this spreading? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because you say it about Israel, but I want to tell you something. It's also in America. I have in the past, I would say six months, seven months, gotten so many uh, dinner invitations, school um, gala um, invitations, announcements, um, advertisements from toy stores where little girls are blurred out of the of the products okay little girls faces are blurred out of the products in 
um, in circulars that go around to the Jewish community. I had people from Bergenfield recently send me, you know, Bergenfield's modern Orthodox. They sent me a, a dinner invitation for a school. It's a Passaic school, but they were trying to get money from the Bergenfield people with doctor and doctor XX. I don't want to say who their names are. And only the husband's picture is there. So that's Bergenfield, New Jersey. Okay. That's not Ramat Beit Shemesh, Israel. And I get people who are absolutely devastated who say to me, I can't believe, you know, I, people for a long time were saying to me, it's never going to happen here. It's never going to happen here. It's never going to happen here. And I said to them, I hope you're right. But unfortunately, in LA, in New Jersey, in New York, I'm people are saying to me, it's here and I don't know what to do. The Jewish link is accepting advertisements without women. The five town Jewish, whatever it's called, is accepting advertisements without women. What am I supposed to do? And so you're, you're in a position where your local papers, your local schools are joining this bandwagon of erasing women because it's economics. Mm -hmm. Why? Because, well, if I put a picture of women, so someone's going to have a backlash. But if I don't put in a picture of women, who's going to care? Because the modern Orthodox people are not getting up and shaking the, shaking the, the trees. They're not, they're not you know, saying no, no, no. Except that now that they, now we are. And now we're saying, no, this is not acceptable. And now my friends in L.A. are going to their school principals and saying, no, you're not going to erase my daughters. And my friends in New Jersey are saying, no, you're not going to erase my daughters. But it's an uphill battle because we've allowed it to go on for so long. And so not only in Israel is it happening to the modern Orthodox community and the Dati Lumi community, but it's also happening in America. It's happening in England. It's happening in France because it's the, what is it called? The lowest common denominator, right? right. So if you're advertising and you want to advertise to the whole Jewish community, ah, so I'll make one pure, clean ad for everybody. And we have to uphill battle it. I mean, we have Pesach programs now, right? And those Pesach programs that do, show, that do have women speaking, so they've had, I mean, I've seen husband and wife teams who the husband is shown and the wife is not. If you can't get a man to stand up and say, I, you, if you're not going to show my wife, don't show me, you know, well, the, then who's going to do it? We have to be part of this solution. We have to talk back because I'm telling you right now, and I've been saying this for six and a half years, no one else is fixing this for us. And it's going to affect our daughter, my daughter. I brought home the other uh, two weeks ago, I guess was Purim, whatever it was. Some, uh, one of the local, not the local paper, national paper had a Megillah insert given out. Um, and it was, um, it was sponsored by a organization called Pa'amonim, which is, has to do with financing and budgets and has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. But, you know, it's Israel. So if you want to do something to be nice and advertise, you send something like a um, Megillah or Haggadah out. And this Megillah had no women, meaning no Esther, hmm. right? So Megillat Esther had no Esther. And so when I pointed this out to my daughter and I was so angry, she looks at me and she goes, Mommy, none of the Megillahs have women. In. Hmm. Is that what we want for our daughters? That they just accept and understand and think that that no Megillah is going to have that no Megillah is going to have an Esther that the Haggadah is not going to have Miriam and Yocheved and all of the women who went out of Egypt and who made the redemption possible we are cannot give over this type of Judaism to our daughters and our sons by the way this is not just a women's issue I, I, I need to make this clear like this is about the health of the Jewish community and you pointed out very correctly that if a man does not know how to normally interact with a woman how to respect her how to understand her how to speak to her how to appreciate her. How the hell is he going to have a relationship with her and raise children? 
Right? We have, in Ramat Beit Shemesh, we've had violence. Actual rocks thrown. I was personally spit on by extremists. And it's easy to say, oh, they're just a few extremists. Sure, there are a few extremists who have 10 kids each. And now I have, we have next, to, next door to us in our, um, in our city, a very large community of boys and girls who think that any woman who looks like me or you is a shiksa. I've been called a shiksa so many times, I, my grandmother would be rolling over in her grave. It's a conditioning. You are conditioning this generation to believe that women should not be seen. They're conditioning that, that seeing a woman, no matter how modestly dressed, by the way, is immodest. Right. So not only do you have boys who can't figure out right from left up from down and how to respect a woman, no matter how she looks, but you have girls who are only left with the visuals of the Kardashians. Right. Because there's no magazine that emulates or shows that you can be um, modest and attractive without being um, uh, licentious. Uh, for lack of a better word, you know, and they've turned modest women into pritsut because pritsut meaning licentiousness, because if you can't, if you can't look like a normal woman with a smile and a headshot and a, and a, and a nice, you know, outfit, then what's left for us. And that's why, by the way, a lot of religious women are going to Instagram or to Facebook and they're living their lives online Hmm. because, and by the way, Mishpacha magazine and Ami magazine, all these magazines that don't show women in print, they show them online. Because if you're already online, so you're already trafe, Wow. right? So what they don't have in print, they'll have online. <laughs> and so you're creating, by the way, uh, uh, this is even something else. You're creating two separate Jewish worlds. Right. Right. You have the Jewish world online where people or women exist. And you have the Jewish world in print. And if you come back in 100 years and you look at magazines, all Jewish magazines from the last, you know, 10 years until the next, however long until we finish this Mishigas, then you're going to think Jewish women don't exist. That is our historical record for the past 10 years. Jewish women don't exist under the age of, over the age of what, three or seven. I think the Mishpacha policy now is seven years old. So what what are we doing? I mean, it's fascinating. It's, I I think it's not even just Jewish women. There was a, a, a photo of members of Knesset in which the women were either blurred out or some just totally photoshopped out. So you saw this much smaller Knesset as if the women were just never elected. Correct. Not only that, but it depends on the the magazine you were looking at, but some of them just blurred out their face and left their legs. It was hilarious, by Mm -hmm. the way. Um, And the other ones just completely removed them. Right. Like they did not exist. And so you're, you're you know, is, we say in, in, in uh, Judaism, it's midavar sheker tirchak, which means stay far away from falsehood. And yet this is complete falsehood. You are creating a reality that doesn't exist. Not only that, but you're firmer than God. Right. I mean, like all of a sudden we are firmer that God created male, female, Adam and, ha- Adam and Eve and said, go figure things out, and work things out together. Right. Go build a world. And and what these people are saying is, nah, we got the guys will do it. We can't have the women. Take her back, God. It's like it's something out of. And and the truth is that nobody really thinks about it. But I will tell you this: I've, I went to. This has actually happened twice. I, I went to someone who everyone would consider a gadol. He's a gadol. He's a great Torah scholar who everyone respects. Haredi, and I said, you know, 
can you help us with this whole erasing women thing? Can you, can you make things, can you tell people that it's crazy, that it shouldn't be done? And he looked at me and he's like, I don't have suicidal tendencies. I said, what do you mean? He's like, if I do that, all the other work I'm doing will be lost. Why? Because he knows they're already, the whole community is off the deep end. And there's no way the Haredi community is ever going to backtrack on this. He said, there's no way that anything I say about it is going to make a difference because if I do that, they won't listen to me on anything else, which means that the tail is wagging the dog, right? They're so off the derech that they're not going to listen to a gadol who they respect and revere because they're off the deep end. And so I'm not talking to the Haredi community. I'm not going to change the Haredi community, but I will be damned if I will watch the modern Orthodox community continue to allow this to happen and not stand up against it. It is absolutely in our yards. It is absolutely our job. And if we can go and say that things are wrong on the left, then we damn well be able to say that things are not right on the right. And that's who, my, that's who our audience is at this point. You need to stop this from happening in our own communities. We need to stop this from happening in our own communities. So what does that consist of? What is Chochmat Nashim doing to push back against this? And what can, you know, if our listeners are, are fired up about this, or what can the public in general be doing to aid in this effort um, to restore women to the public sphere of, you know, our conversations, our publications, right? If people, people think, people, there are people out here who are going to be thinking, this is crazy. Like, I had no idea this was happening, except maybe in the tiniest of fringes. Um, what what should they be doing in response? So that's a really great question, and we always try to make sure that we let the community know that this is absolutely in their hands. So the answer is, it's it's actually multifold. So first of all, do not patronize, do not purchase, do not advertise in any or any publication, magazine uh, that doesn't show women. When Ura sends you a request for charity. When, <clears throat> sorry, when URA or other organizations send you a request for charity and they don't have women in their brochures, which these organizations have started to do, you write, send back the card and say, I will be donating to an organization that does show women. This is against my beliefs and my policy. And the minute that you are going to go back to Jewish tradition and include the Jewish women, please do send it to me again. So that's, we have to make our voices known because the whole reason they're doing it is an economic reason. So we have to be that opposite economic force and say, you're going to lose if you erase Jewish women. Uh, if it happens in your school. Sorry, can I just cut in for a second? Yeah. If you, for, for people that think they've never heard of URA, which is a, uh, a Jewish education yeah. charity. Mm-hmm. Um, URA is, is actually um, Cars for Kids, which you've probably heard their jingle on the radio. Um, really? Yes, that wow. is the same organization. They, um, they, it is a, a much disguised fundraising effort, but it's there. So these organizations are, are much more prominent than, than you might realize. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been out of America for a while, so I, d- I definitely did not hear that connection, but I definitely know that the URA in the past few years has not had any women. Not only that, <laughs> but they offer, they offer, it's pretty hilarious, they offer shopping sprees. And they just show a whole bunch of men sitting on chairs, presumably waiting for their wives to get done with the shopping spree. <laughs> so it does. I have to say the one thing that this policy does do is give us a lot of hilarious ads, which we have on our Facebook page. Uh, you, should, you can go and see our Facebook page and there's a lot of them. Um, so, yeah. So don't patronize publications or organizations that erase women. 
if you see books, this is happening more and more and more. My son came home from school with a book, a gorgeously illustrated book without one woman in it. I said to the school, this is unacceptable. I called the the publisher. You know, they have, by the way, I don't know if they have this in America. I'm sure they do. Uh, They have Hersherim, Kashfus certifications for books that are clean of women. Oh, my God. It's so sad. I'm sorry. I'm laughing. I can't. Sometimes it just gets so absurd. Um, Actually, Chochmat Nashim is coming out with our own stamp of approval. So books and organizations that do show women and that do not erase women are going to have our own uh, stamp of approval. And we're going to have uh, a page where you can know, you can go to our page and you'll know these places are, are good to go. Um, so uh, publications, organizations, um, schools, schools, if they have a dinner and they're honoring people, make sure that the husband and wife are both shown. And if they are not, protest ideally before it goes out, right? Be proactive. That's another thing. Like we can't just be reactive. We have to be proactive. Oh, we're having an institution dinner. Great. Let's make sure the woman is there. Are we having a, you know, a shiur, a woman is giving a class. Let's make sure her picture is there. Um, we put out guidelines. Chochmat Nashim put out guidelines for publications that let people know, for example, NCSY doesn't erase women, but they didn't realize that they were marginalizing women because the women's pictures were smaller, <laughs> the women's titles were not there, and they were physically separated on the page from the men. So the men had these large circles on the top with their titles and their pictures, and the women underneath the bar was smaller pictures without titles, and of course the only thing they were talking about was girls' education. And so we created these guidelines to let people know the words and the visuals matter. We have to counter this trend by doing the opposite, by making sure that women, Jewish women are prominent, that Jewish women are seen, that Jewish women are heard, that we understand the value of the Jewish woman, that health and body parts are discussed in clean and proper ways. Um, we just got a, a great boon from Rav Asher Weiss, um, actually, he gave us a, a tshuva, a, a halachic response about the importance of breast cancer screening, about using the word breast as opposed to, you know, now they call it the women's disease. All these things really affect women. And so we as the community can counter that by being super um, aware and of not allowing this to happen under our watch. And that means our schools, our shuls, our magazines. It means where we advertise um, and I know that some people will find this very frustrating because a lot of areas at this point, that's just the norm. But we've allowed it to become that norm. And we have to do the work if we don't want it to be the norm from now on. There's no going, like, there's no, no one else is turning the tide. This is in our hands. And that means tell your, tell your, ask your rabbi, rabbi, can you speak about this from the pulpit? I had a rabbi um, write to me privately and he said, you know, I thought you were, I, I just thought you were an alarmist. I didn't think that what you were saying was really true and that it was really happening. But um, a congregant came to me and said, you know, Rabbi, is it the right thing to do to not have women? And he said, we're, we're in Queens. This is a modern Orthodox community. Of course not. No. And she said, oh, I just assumed that because they were doing it, it was the right thing, but we just weren't firm enough. And he said, and I want to thank you for consistently talking out about this because I now know that I need to communicate proactively with my community to say, this is what, you know, we can't be reactive, right? We can't say, well, we're not this and we're not this. If the modern Orthodox community is going to thrive, we have to have an identity that is not what we're not. 
right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it can't be, well, I'm not on the left, and I'm, I don't ordain women, and I don't erase women. No, no, no. We have to have an identity that says what we stand for. And so he said, now I'm proactive. Now I speak to my community. So ask your rabbi to speak out about it. Ask your rabbi to discuss these things. Talk about it yourself. You know, we are the Jewish people. Nobody owns the Torah. No one owns it more than we do. Talk about it. Make these things on the public consciousness. And for the love of God, sign prenups. I know we're not talking about prenups, but I'm throwing it in there. But it has to do with it. Please sign a prenup. <laughs> Just for a tiny bit of context, uh, that that was uh, the the notion of, of a halachic prenup, meaning um, to circumvent in in in. Uh, to circumvent the issue in in Jewish marriage of of men uh, refusing to give a get a Jewish divorce, um, there are. Correct. This is something I think that we've talked about in the past in passing, but yeah. I, I know it's another issue for Chochmat Nashim, and uh, definitely we can include some some links in the show notes to give people more context for that conversation if they're interested. So sorry about throwing that in there, but it's all it's <laughs> all of a piece in it's my connected. mind that we. Yes, and we in the modern Orthodox, we in the Orthodox community need to make decisions as to where we want to go. You know, Judaism is dynamic. It's an incredible religion that is responsive. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that it's not in the past, it's right now. And our actions and our decisions create Judaism. And I don't mean rewriting the Torah and I'm not saying make new laws, but these things are changing. Erasing women is new and we need to stand up and say, you know, this isn't, this isn't what orthodox orthodoxy should be. We want a healthy orthodoxy that we're going to keep our numbers, by the way, and not lose them. The number one uh, reason stated in the Shema, I think it's called the Shema um, survey on why women leave orthodoxy uh, is the status of women. And it was, by the way, I think the second or third um, reason given for men leaving orthodoxy. So it's not a problem that doesn't affect us. It affects us in many ways and includes that losing those numbers because of the status of women. So if we want a healthy, strong orthodox community, it is up to each and every one of us to say, this is, this is my stance and I'm going to act on it. You know, we have values in Judaism. We got to stand on them. Well, Shoshana, thank you so much for that call to arms, and we really appreciate you joining us this month on Talking Angel. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I am back. For our second segment, we wanted to talk about a few issues that are linked together. A few weeks ago, the New York Times published a story containing allegations of sexual harassment by Michael Steinhardt, a Jewish billionaire who's known for his philanthropy and also known for making inappropriate comments to employees of his foundations and employees of organizations asking for his funding. This story had already been reported by the Jewish Week a few months ago, but the Times got more people on the record and told a very compelling story. And I should also note that the Times was working with ProPublica. They co-published the story. One of the conversations that came out of the story is about how much influence mega donors like Steinhardt and the Bronfman Family Foundation and the Harold Grinspoon Foundation and many others have. So that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, so I know there's a lot here. There's a lot to unpack, as we like to say. Um, Zahava, do you, I know you have been, you, you had written some things. Do you want to get us started? Yeah, this is something that, Prior to thinking through for this segment, I hadn't given a lot of thought. Um, and I think that um, other than like 
community shul appeals. Um, I hadn't thought a ton about Jewish philanthropy. Um, and it was really interesting to read this piece uh, in the Washington Post um, written re recently by Leela Corwin Berman about the evolution of Jewish charity in the United States and how over time, um, as the community has become a little more affluent and the needs are less widespread and immediate in that same way, um, that there's become a move away from giving to federations, which give out all their money pretty much year by year as needed, and moving in the direction of foundations with standing endowments um, and large funds that they give from. And it made me think about how if there's this big pot of money that the same person is presiding over for a long time, that giving out that money can be subject to that person's personal priorities. Um, and especially if you think about sort of the traditional model of charity. And I think charity is a different word than philanthropy for a reason, right? So like the the traditional model of charity, it's not like a mystery who that money goes to because it's for poor people, right? The notion in Jewish law of tzedakah initially is there are people without enough to get by, and that is what charity is for, primarily. And philanthropy is different. It funds different enterprises. You know, if if you're looking for its biblical antecedent, maybe things like people donating money to build the tabernacle is a form of philanthropy in that way, right? Like you support things that you think are important, even if they are not, quote unquote, charity. Um, and it's it's interesting to think about how when that, when it's, one person's money instead of communal money, and when it's a long-standing pot of money instead of an immediate need, that one person's priorities develop this really outsized role over time. One piece that I also appreciated about um, Berman's piece in the Washington Post was that she she also talked about the outside the Jewish community, some of the tax structure that was playing into this, in that it it was beneficial for very wealthy families. There were um, tax, there were favorable tax laws for setting up foundations as opposed to giving big portions of your money each year to organizations. Um, and so I, I imagine that this trend is happening outside of the Jewish community, though I'm excited to focus on the impact it's had in Jewish giving and Jewish nonprofit world. It's funny to hear um, both of you talk about the, I, I mean, it was funny to read this article and hear it talk about the ways that the, the reason that people used to give to federations versus like now these big mega donors, because I feel like what it didn't really address is like the people who aren't mega donors and now are not giving um, as much to federations, which to me is like, I mean, I guess probably you can make a donation to the Steinhardt Family Foundation or whatever, but why would anybody? Because they have all the money in the world, essentially. Um, and the federation, like in theory, still does, in fact, more than ever really does um, need funds. But I feel like the other side of that is that federations aren't a particularly great model of giving either. Like this idea that we're going to trust this one organization <clears throat> to be the arbiter of who gets funds. I don't, 
I just have not personally been that impressed by the way a lot of federations actually do give out funds. And that makes me disinclined to be a part of that giving community. So I think that that, that then leads, and, and I know that I'm not alone. I mean, I don't think this is the case certainly for every member for every millennial i'm not even really sure i believe in this generational stuff but i think that (laughs) i certainly know lots of people my age who wouldn't dream of giving to a federation um and i i do think that like one of the weird things about the mega donors is they've created this bizarre vacuum where it's like they fund a lot of things so a lot of things like say birthright are free and then there doesn't become a culture of giving um in the same way that there used to be or even like it used to be a thing that you people would save to go to israel with their families and obviously some people still do that but there's also a sense of like, actually, it's better if I don't take my whole family to Israel because then my child might not be eligible for birthright. So it's better for me to just wait. And then when my child turns 18 or 19 or whatever, they can go on birthright for free. Um, there's kind of like a whole calculus around this stuff that has sprung up that I think um, has just kind of changed how we do things. I guess I want to push back one piece on the uh, about federation, which is that I think that the mega donor issue is certainly also occurring within federations. I mean, yeah. um we read a piece by Benjamin Sales in Times of Israel where he talks about federations creating an 80/20, sometimes even a 90/10 model where 80% of their um, donations are coming from a few big donors or big families. Um, and yeah, they're still doing their big, you know, Super Sunday or mega big, big event um, donor drives. But that that just makes up so much less of their of their funding. And, and one piece that I thought that I really appreciated that he said is that it's changed Federation used to have sort of this consensus driven approach, right, that we were giving and there was a general consensus of where our money was going. And when somebody controls 80% of the money coming into a federation, that person gets to determine where that money goes. Um, Yeah, maybe just his or her 80%. But still, that's, you know, uh, what we give is nothing. I mean, that article left me a little unclear as to what the chicken was and what the egg was. I mean, because it's not just that there are mega donors that are swamping smaller donations. That article was reporting on a study that um, was that came out about a year ago, um, funded by the Avichai Foundation, for whatever that's worth, where the number of donations and the total amount of donations is declining. So the relative importance of the of the big single foundation funders is increasing, but it's not as though like Michael Steinhardt came along and overshadowed all of the consistent small donations. And it's actually interesting to see this trend as in American politics, you're seeing kind of a push in the other direction where it's become a mark of pride for for politicians, especially in the Democratic Party, to have more small dollar donations, and that there are a lot of there are a lot more people giving twenty bucks to somebody 
Um, and you know, I, I fall in that category, right? I give small dollar political donations and it, it's interesting where I'm just sort of, um, reflecting on my own giving, right? Like what, where do I give money? I give some smaller dollar political donations. I give to sometimes sort of like miniature friend causes. There's a lot of people sharing on Facebook that they're doing for this campaign or that campaign and it always seems worthy and and my friends are, you know, good on the whole, good people with like smart <laughs> smart intentions for these things and, you know, um and so some of the money goes there. There's giving attached to Jewish holidays like we just had Purim where there's like an obligation to give to people for Purim specifically. And I gave through my synagogue for that. And it's all like very specific occasions, right? When, Whenever there's a fast day, I get an email from Fast for Feast, which um, encourages me to give the money that I would have spent on food on a fast day instead to a hunger charity. There's a lot of like these little things. And I actually am doing those things. But it wouldn't occur to me that it would make sense to give 20 bucks to Federation. Like, that just seems a little like, like spitting in the ocean. I might as well put my $20 somewhere where it'll be noticed. And maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe that doesn't make sense. I think it does make sense. It's certainly how I feel about this as well. Um, I feel like both my money isn't enough to make a difference. But also, like, one of the things that's weird about umbrella organizations is that... Like, I don't actually know where my money's going, and it could be going to a lot of things, some of which are also not stuck up. Like, some of them are things, it's like, sometimes they're, like, investing in a program in Israel, or, like, paying for, like, subsidizing day school education, which are not things that are necessarily good or bad, but it doesn't help me if what I'm trying to do is, is give stuck up. And even if I'm not trying to give stuck up, I'm just trying to be philanthropic, you know, I, I don't I'm not necessarily into all of the things that the Federation is giving money to. Um, and it's not hard for me to find lots of worthy causes like Zahava. Like there's people, I see people constantly raising money for all kinds of things that are really valuable. And certainly in our current political climate, there's no shortage of communities that are really suffering. And it's not hard for me to find a place where I feel like my money could be put to good use. So I feel like the, um, you know, the Federation model just doesn't work for me, but it also does mean that, yeah, the Federations are going to these mega donors for a lot of money. And then they, those mega donors have a huge say and Federations, you know, for good or for ill do still do a huge amount of the allocating of funds within kind of settled Jewish communities. And some of that fun, some of that, some of the work that they do is like absolutely extremely important, vital to our Jewish communities, work that people don't ever see. I'm always struck when the New York Times does its like neediest cases um, towards the end of the year. If very, very frequently the neediest cases who are not always, are not usually people who are Jewish very often they have gotten money from the Jewish Federation of New York um, or some program that the Jewish Federation of New York runs. So it's like they're doing some of the work that they're doing is stuff that 
I am really enthusiastic about and grateful that they're doing. It's just like, there's so much that they're doing that it's actually hard for me to know what is happening. Right. And I would say I, I used to work for an organization that received money under that Federation umbrella. And it's hard for those organizations when their lifeblood is Federation money. And when Federation um, giving drops, suddenly the income that they were really counting on is being cut and they have to make horrible decisions about staff versus programs versus direct services. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it has real ramifications. I, I'm curious to talk a little bit about these family foundations, um, because in tra- looking back, t- trying to find some notes that we had made about for this episode, I searched in my email for Steinhardt, and I realized I had some emails from somebody at Steinhardt Foundation um, Several years ago, I was interested in this idea of the Hebrew Hebrew language charter schools, and I hadn't I had forgotten that Steinhardt was really involved, not him in particular, though I don't know, but that the foundation was really involved in thinking about big picture approaches to Jewish education, to Hebrew language learning. Um, You know, I think also about the Grinspoon Foundation and what they've done with PJ Library. I mean, some of the freedom that big family foundations have is that they can be more innovative, or maybe maybe that's not fair to federations. Um, But I'm curious if you guys have thought about some of, maybe some of the good things that come from mega donor family foundations. Well, I feel like I should say, um, and I suppose this is part disclaimer, fundamentally my salary is paid by family foundations, right? I work for a philanthropically funded organization, um, and when I say philanthropically funded, I mean, on the whole, foundation money. Um, If you, like, go look at the organizational website of where I work and you look at our funders page, it will you'll see some names that you recognize. It'll say things like Gates and Walton and um, and Helmsley and whatever. And people are, people have all the associations with what kind of organization we must be because we're funded by such and such, which usually is not accurate. Um, but my organization, I think, because I'm incredibly biased, is doing important work, right? I, I think that the things that I spend my day on are important. However, they are not like, you know, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, right? They are not, they are not like there is an immediate emergency in one person's life and we are addressing, right? There's a long-term notion that like my organization is doing research and trying to affect policy that will have big, you know, small immediate effects, but big ripple effects, we hope, right? And the people that fund that kind of work are going to be people with money to spend and the room in their lives to have vision about non-emergency things, right? And I think there's real value to that. I think the thing is that as an organization, there needs to be a range of philanthropic funders that you could go to because it needs to be about funding the work that you're trying to do and not doing the work they're trying to fund. Right? I think that's really the key thing. If there's only one or two players right. in the entire communal space, then those people have real outsized power. 
Whereas if you're in like, okay, we're an organization that does social justice work related to such and such area. There are lots of foundations that are broadly interested in that. If we could like make the pitch that the work that we are trying to do fits under that umbrella, right? That gives us the flexibility. I think the thing is that any one funder, like any one rich person, I'll say, does not get told their ideas are stupid. People are always there trying to get them to fund the work that they're trying to do. And therefore, they're trying to say, my work fits under your brilliant rubric, your brilliant vision for what the world is, is in need of. Right. And lo and behold, here I am and I checked your box. You're always pitching that. And because that's the interaction you have with the people doing the work, you're not hearing like, no, you need to rethink your vision. And so if you combine that with being one of the few players in the game, then that person's vision goes unquestioned and becomes really influential. Beyond that, like if if we look specifically at the issue around Steinhardt, I think that like one of the things that came up is Steinhardt, part of the reason that he got in trouble is because he made a lot of inappropriate remarks to women about their reproductive situation about basically fertility and inappropriately talking about how people should have babies and make babies and like okay first of all let's just say don't do that it's so gross and inappropriate and there's nothing less less good to hear it I mean there's lots of less good things than that to hear at work I suppose but don't do that it's a really terrible thing to do you don't know what's going on in someone's life. They may be trying very hard to get pregnant and they may be very extremely uncomfortable and sad to get extra pressure from someone at work, for instance, or maybe they really don't want to have a child and they would not really, it's <laughs> none of your business. Anyways, that was a th- <laughs> cosine. That was a thing that Steinhardt was apparently quite known for doing. And he was, not only was he kind of, inappropriate guy about this he actually was funding research by Stephen M. Cohen who turns out to also be an inappropriate guy about these things and programs to deal with Jewish continuity so he had his brilliant idea and then he was kind of he was like you know a pharmaceutical that sponsors a study that miraculously finds that the pharmaceutical is really the answer to all the world's problems like he had a vision and he was kind of funneling lots of things into the vision and he had research to back his vision, but the research was maybe not as um, pure as he might, as, as we might've thought. Um, And that is a problem. Like I think there's, it's not only that like people won't say no to you if you're rich and you have a foundation that's based on a thing. It's also that like people are going to, People are, are going to sit in meetings in different nonprofits and be like, we want a piece of that Steinhardt money. So what kind of program can we run that we can say will help with Jewish continuity? And then you'll end up with programming that people never would have come up with before because they think like we might be able to get staffing and funding for this from the Steinhardt Foundation. Like that is a real thing that has happened and has had real ramifications Um in our lives. And it's hard to see because we don't necessarily like, we're not aware of these things as they're happening, but you know, I have a lot of 
single women friends um, in the Jewish community who are really frustrated about, I mean, they're, they're very upset about all the Steinhardt stuff because they feel like between Steinhardt and Stephen M. Cohen, this idea of Jewish continuity has been like just the kind of drumbeat in a lot of Jewish communities for a long time and has been making them feel really bad about themselves for not being married and not having children when it's like, why did we have to focus on this to begin with? So I don't know. I just feel like there's like a lot of things that kind of came together to make this um, a problematic issue. And it's not just like nobody says no to rich people. It's like people are the whole whole communities are kind of bent to the whims um, in these things in ways that are not immediately evident to us. Right. I, I was going to make some joke about like maybe what we need is just more Jewish mega donors with diverse perspectives on what the big fix is. Um, but but I, I feel like I do have a question lingering of like, well, what's to be done? Like, where does the solution lie? I mean, what that says to me I don't know if this is a viable thing to really suggest, but it means that donation recipients need to have standards or perhaps more conviction in the mission that they have. Um, Because if you wouldn't be running this program for lack of an interest in getting that person's money, then why is it a program you need money for? Um, I mean, look, with setting aside Steinhardt personally, because the recent news about him, I, I don't have any interest in in showing him personal respect. But I want to like say, if you're a if you're a very wealthy person, right, and your priority is strengthening the Jewish community, what what are we suggesting that you should do? Like show up with no opinions and give your money to whoever asked for it? Like obviously not, right? Like it makes sense that if that if you have the money to give and you have a strong conviction and you have a great interest in some version of, of strengthening the Jewish community, then that's something to like value and respect. On the other hand, your vision doesn't have to win the day with every person and organization that needs philanthropic dollars. And so Mimi, for all that that was tongue in cheek, would it be helpful to have like a greater diversity of Jewish mega donors? Like absolutely it would. But it also makes me wonder if, Maybe what we need is more f- federations on the giving side. I what I mean by that is not like federations to distribute money to to Jewish institutions, but like federations of donors coming together, right? If you are not an individual mega donor, but like the notion of community coalitions of giving and helping like and having a, a wider range of values or a more uh, consensus model of values or something coming together to like rival a mega donor in some way. I think that would be really interesting um, and don't really have a clear idea of how that would work or whether that really makes sense from whatever structural tax perspective people care about. But right. you see what I'm saying? Like if it is no longer the case that you have lots and lots of people sending their small donation to a consensus driven community institution, then maybe in our donor focused era, like if like 50 people got together and pooled their moderate sized donations, then they could have, an agenda setting force as well. Yeah. 
And I, I think some of that is happening. I mean, they're giving circles, at least people have talked with me about giving circles and I don't quite know what they feel or look like on the inside, but it's something you hear about. I have heard about them, but I've never been invited to one. Um, uh, I I want to say to the, like, we need more mega donors. Like, uh, there is one woman who is known for giving causes to Jewish feminist organizations. I believe her name is Carol Dobkin. And she funded Advancing Women Professional and the Jewish Community, which was Sunset, because, like, Basically, any Jewish feminist organization that you know of, not including this podcast, has gotten money from Carol Dobkin, and she does, you know, like, she has a lot of money, but not infinite amount of money, and she sometimes is like, okay, if no one else is going to do this, I'm not going to do it all by myself. Like, she does want other people to be with her. You know, Steinhardt always have... Bronfman backing him up and uh, I don't think there's someone doing that for Carol Dabkin and yeah I mean I think it just more than more than one or two point of views would be would be really great um, but also like these are organization like, I think there's there needs to be I was at a conversation with a bunch of people about sexual harassment in the Jewish community and we talked about the idea of like having a like hotline that you could call if you worked for a a Jewish organization to be like I'm being sexually harassed at this organization and then someone from this new organization would then investigate it um and that way we would have kind of like an outside place that people could call if they needed to, um, if they wanted to be a whistleblower. And the initial, the first question in this conversation, we were talking about this idea was like, well, who's going to pay for it? Somebody has to agree to pay for it. And then if say Steinhardt pays for it, well, is if Steinhardt is funding it, can you call it to say that something's happening at Steinhardt? And are they really going to look into it? Like, you just have this problem of like, if we make this thing, someone has to give the money and then whoever gives the money probably isn't going to really ever get under the microscope, even if they should. And in a way you can imagine that that would be a great way to never be under the microscope is to like fund an organization that will do this for everybody else. So I don't know. It just feels like an impossible situation to get out of as we were prepping i i was thinking a little bit about um what judaism has to say about the ethics of giving um because it seems like we're having this conversation within the context of the larger like secular world me too moment um and people are talking about Steinhardt in that context, which obviously makes sense, but it feels like the conversation's a little bit lacking in talking about Jewish ethics of, of um, philanthropy. And so this has been making me think about the concept of Gaba Eitztaka, um, who are like in the Talmud, like going back to the Mishnah, there's like a position of the community charity official. Um, who presides over the community charity fund and collects and distributes. And there's like actual halacha about this. Like Jewish law 
talks about what this person has to do and how to distribute responsibility over multiple people and how to ensure that there are there aren't abuses of power and that there's dignity in the receiving of charity and things like that. Um, and this is not an area of halacha that I'm very well versed in. Frankly, it's not an area of halacha that people talk about as super live and relevant, I think, because this version of the institution doesn't exist. But there actually is like a wealth of Jewish texts that deal with ethical conduct in giving out community charitable funds. Um, and it might be time to draw on them. Like it might be time for like an interesting, like, you know, nonprofit collaborative text study um, or whatever that looks like in practice um, to talk about the, the mm -hmm. ethics of giving and receiving philanthropic dollars in the Jewish community. All right. So let's give our endorsements. Zahava, would you like to begin? So I have um, two endorsements. So my like sub endorsement is the recent Israeli elections um, had me thinking about how as an American, I'm like very bad at understanding parliamentary systems with coalition based uh, politics. And just the thing that has helped me like understand this model of politics is uh, watching the TV show Borgen. Mm. Have you guys watched Borgen? Love mm -hmm. that show. Three yes. seasons of Danish government. Awesome Danish television show. It's like the Danish West Wing. Um, so yeah, it aired for three seasons in the mid to late 2000s. Um, it's the fictional account of the first female prime minister of Denmark, uh, followed shortly afterwards in real life by the actual first female prime minister of Denmark. Great TV show. Highly recommend Borgen. Everybody should check it out. Um, and there's like a great exploration of how to put together a coalition government after a split election in the very <laughs> first episode, um, which is, trust me, much more entertaining than it sounds. Um, and then my other recommendation, um, which works as a recipe that you can make for Passover or, you know, the rest of the time, um, mm. is my family's recipe for unstuffed cabbage. Um, hmm. So basically, stuffed cabbage is a humongous pachkarai. It is a huge pain to make. Um, and my mom has adapted my Bubby's recipe for stuffed cabbage into a much easier recipe for unstuffed cabbage. Hmm. Um, so basically, there's all of the actual components of like a tomatoey, sweet, rice beef cabbage situation but done as more of a a one pot kind of stew and you don't have to like pre-boil the cabbage and lay it out flat and roll it up and whatever but you get all of the same flavors um and you know pretty much the same texture um so it's a great like you know it's still chilly early spring evening uh early passover dinner situation um, I had a variation on it for dinner this very evening. Um, so I will share the adapted recipe in show notes. Um, but thanks, Mom awesome. Stadler, for sharing the unstuffed cabbage recipe. And I will pass it along to all of you. <laughs> that sounds great because I'm totally never going to stuff cabbage. <laughs> all right, Mimi, what have you got to endorse? So I went to a performance um, last weekend called trimester um 
Jewish Fertility Journeys Out Loud. It was um, a music and dance performance um, brought to my community by an organization called Uprooted. Um, Uprooted is uh, an organization that really, it sounds like, tries to join um, join people in their journeys towards parenthood, wherever they are. Um, and they have what looks like a really cool mentorship program. Um, they call their mentors guides and those looking for a mentor, a traveler. Um, and it's a lot of women, men, couples, single people, queer people, straight people um, talking about infertility and what they went through. They have a lot of information um, about various fertility methods, but also just, I think, having the conversation um, and bringing light to people's journeys towards parenthood or not towards parenthood um, was really powerful for me. The performance included a talk back um, and people in the audience were really it was very intergenerational and I got to hear from um, women and couples who now have kids in their thirties and are, you know, suddenly sort of reliving those seven years of trying to get pregnant. Um, it was just super moving and beautiful. And I encourage you wherever you are, um, take a look at uprooted um, website and, some of their publications, because I think it's a really beautiful organization. Um, so that's one. And the other lighter endorsement, we sort of got started talking about mega donors um, based on an article about the um, the Jewish media group Bim Bomb that makes Jewish educational videos and is basically closing for lack of funding. Um, and I really want to encourage people before Bim Bomb becomes the URJs, the Union for Reform Judaism sort of proprietary um, uh, media, I, I think go to YouTube, type in Bim Bomb and check out some of their videos because this stuff was brilliant. Um, and not just for kids, really great. Some of the music was really good. The animation was awesome. I loved their series about King David um, as somebody who sort of tuned out for a lot of that part of Tanakh. Um, I feel like I learned things from these animated videos and um, yeah, Bim Bam, like you did great. Thank you. There are some excellent Bim Bam videos, so I totally co-sign that. Hopefully this, I will have an uh, opportunity to edit and we'll put this episode out in time that people can, if they so choose, go um, online to the link I'll put in the show notes and order a copy of The Kitchen Haggadah Game 2016 version 3.0. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> That's this... a lot of qualifications. Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> The Kitchen is a synagogue community. I mean, I think they, I don't know if they have like an actual physical building or not in San Francisco. And they have put together a Haggadah deck of cards. Basically, the 
components of the Haggadah are distributed onto this deck of cards. There's like ritual pieces on some cards and then there's a bunch of cards that just kind of have questions. And basically you deal the cards out and then you go through the steps in order, but there's a bunch of cards that people can play by just like reading the question and opening it up for conversation at any time. And we used this at our second Seder last year and I was kind of hesitant about using it, except that um, my friend David Amwalensky had said that this that it was amazing, which is why I bought it. And it was incredible. We had totally the best Seder I've ever had, where we like did all the steps of the Seder, but because we weren't reading out of a Haggadah, we were just kind of talking. We had a really quite intense and beautiful conversation about freedom and liberation and slavery. And it was really awesome. Um, and I mean, we did definitely did not read every text of the Hebrew in the manner of, of Zahava Stadler's family, but, um, <laughs> uh, but we did like have, as far as I could tell a kosher Seder where we like went through all of the parts and, talked through all the texts that need to be addressed and um, it was incredible and really meaningful. So uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Again, it's called Haggadah Game 2016 version 3.0. It costs $40. And uh, last year I found out about it like within a week of the Seder. So I paid $30 to have it too knighted to me so it was a $70 <laughs> um, thing but it was amazing and like totally worth it um, so and we're using it again this year and of course I like couldn't find it this year when I went to go look for it so then I bought myself another one and then obviously I found the first one so anyways <laughs> uh, I have two copies it's really great uh, I highly recommend it the other um small thing that I want to recommend is, uh, I was recently on a plane and I downloaded a movie to watch on the plane. And the movie that I watched was, uh, the documentary about Hedy Lamar, which is called Bombshell. Um, and I had originally thought that it might be something good for us to talk about on the podcast, which I think it's not because the it doesn't really have any Jewish content other than Hedy Lamar was Jewish, but denied that she was Jewish. <laughs> um, basically, like once she came to the United States uh, in the, I guess, late 30s or mid 30s, and that I'm not even sure, she just said, if you asked her, she said she was not Jewish. Her own children, she told them she was not Jewish. So there's really no Jewish content as a result of that. Not, not that much to talk about. But she was totally an amazing person. She invented a system of protecting yourself from torpedoes um, and <laughs> using torpedoes. She and her husband at the time who was a composer came up with a system for doing this involving bizarrely enough player pianos um then they gave the system to the government which said they weren't going to use it and then totally used it 
So the whole story is completely fascinating. She also uh, invented new kinds of plastic surgery. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, but meanwhile, she was known just for being like extremely beautiful, even though she also turns out to have been extremely smart. Uh, yeah, so it's a good documentary. It's definitely worth watching. I don't know that there's that much to say about it from a Jewish perspective, but that's luckily not the only perspective that I have. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I recommend that documentary and Haggadah Game 2016. Version three. Awesome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I assume that that means that there were other versions, but I do not. I have, I cannot endorse or not endorse them, and I don't think they're available. So <laughs> Maybe on the black market. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, which is jpmedia.co. Look for Talking and Show from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media. Perhaps you're a mega donor. You're listening to this. You're feeling very guilty about your <laughs> influencing of Jewish communities, and you want to change your ways. jpmedia.co. Hit the donate button. That is a wonderful way to support our show and ensure that we are able to bring you new episodes. Zahava, thank you so much. It was a pleasure, as always, to speak with you. Absolutely. Great to be with you guys. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you both for <laughs> uh, talking earlier without me. I apologize for not being able to be there. It's always great. Thanks, guys. We missed you. <laughs> All right. I'll see you next month. Bye. Bye.